Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and a parent of two young adults, one of which is diagnosed on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. Hello and welcome. Um, I'm really excited to have Eric Chesson here uh, today. And um, Eric, you are with Autism Fitness. Mm -hmm. And um, I really love people to introduce themselves. But before we get to that, I just want to say what struck me and what wanted me to reach out to you was I came across your Instagram. Mm -hmm. As my audience knows, I find a lot of people this way. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I came across your Instagram and I was like, oh, this looks interesting. Oh, what is what's what are they doing with kids here and phys ed and just fitness in general? And then I watched your TEDx talk mm -hmm. and I was like, ooh, I really want to connect and learn more about uh, what you do, what your organization does, and also um, just how it can make a difference with those with autism. Mm -hmm. So um, to get started, you know, uh, give us a little background about yourself. Sure. So I am, as we were talking a little bit before we started, I'm originally from Long Island, New York, uh, lived there for all of my life, except the past six months. Uh, my wife and I relocated to Charlotte, North Carolina. And the the brief history of me, so I, uh, in, in terms of how I got to founding Autism Fitness, I was a kind of good athlete in uh, in elementary and middle school. I played baseball, uh, was outside play, uh, playing a lot with, with friends, moving around. And then in high school, my baseball skills be, uh, became uh, not good enough to, to keep being competitive. And I kind of fell off in terms of being physically active and, and gained a lot of weight. And then towards the end of high school, I walked into the weight room one day having 100% zero idea of what to do, but just started moving, started started lifting a little bit. And then I got into uh, martial arts, joined um, a, a Jikundo studio and did some kickboxing. And it really struck me how much moving and how much uh, be, being involved in some type of vigorous physical activity beyond competitive sports had dramatically changed my life, not not only my physical health and, and well-being, but also my self-perception. So that led me to uh, to pursue personal training. And after, so I, I went to uh, John Jay College of Criminal Justice and graduated sure. with, yeah, graduated yeah. with um, a degree in forensic psychology. And I, I, which was predominantly general psych and I loved psychology and I loved fitness. So I said, is there a way to meld the two of these worlds? And I thought for a while, oh, maybe I'll become a sports psychologist. And I'll, I'll do it that way. So I'm in graduate school, also working as a personal trainer with general population at the time. And I have a classmate and in, in uh, the graduate program, it was heavily based in behavior science. 
have a classmate in this behavior science class who says, hey, I work in this program in Manhattan with teenagers on the autism spectrum. We've never had a dedicated fitness program. You know, we've tried some sports stuff. It hasn't really worked. Do you think, do you, think you might be interested in, in developing a curriculum for us? And I thought, all right, could be interesting. I had limited experience with the autism population. I had shadowed and, and been a one-to-one for um, an adolescent uh, with autism in a summer camp program. But beyond that, not too much, not too much experience. So I applied to become a part of this program, started uh, implementing what I knew about fitness, which would continue to, to grow. And as I attempted to do some research or, or anything I could find about fitness for the autism population, I, I found information that was, um, I, I suppose you could say it, it was not exactly useful. It, it was supportive, but not, but not uh, usable. So I would find articles that say fitness and exercise is important for all populations, the <laughs> autism population included. You know, right. w- what do you do with that? And b- before going into you know, the methodology and the, and the protocols, the biggest thing that I ever want anybody to take away from autism fitness or anything we do are is actual usable information, not just, oh, it's so great, not just, oh, look at what autism fitness, look at what I'm doing, look at what our certified pros are doing, but something that they can actually take away and, and do. So that's what we really pride ourselves on in this program. So back to uh, back to Manhattan in this this program, I started implementing fitness programs, got very intensive and, and wonderful training in applied behavior analysis methodologies. And I, uh, by way of, I think I had written a few articles on it and I had a BCBA contact me and say, Hey, I normally work early intervention. I just took on these two cases. They are two 12 year old boys and I have no idea what to do with them. Do you think you can help? So that was kind of the start of uh, taking on new athletes in my program. And what the way that I describe my methodology or what we're doing with autism fitness, it's a bridge between the worlds of the best we can offer in fitness programming and the best that we can offer in positive behavior support and, and coaching. Because you'll see area different disciplines and they're wonderful and they're they're beneficial and they are valid in and of themselves. But when you have an interdisciplinary model that works because you're taking these different aspects of, of programs that make sense, then you have something that is is truly remarkable. And that's been demonstrated by our certified pros. It's been uh, demonstrated by you know the the athletes that we've had come through my program and 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 their programs and and the way that people the way that it resonates for people also um, because people see that we're not just working with the most motivated, most physically capable athletes. In fact, I think the the most important point that I can make about my early career is that my athletes in the beginning did not want to participate and that we did have to consider um, some significant maladaptive behaviors, whether they were uh, aggression, self-injury, wandering off. So the program is not just for, hey, if you have a motivated athlete who really loves to move around and is 100% compliant, then come on down. Um, my the, the pride I have about this program is we start where the athlete is at, and that is that. 
So that is super impactful for me to hear because I think there are a lot of programs out there, right, that are designed for the motivated, engaged student yeah. or, or young person who, you know, really likes a particular type of sport or really yep. likes, you know, phys ed and going. And um, I know having been in a classroom, you know, when it was time to go to phys ed, it, mm-hmm. you know, I taught first grade and second grade, yeah. uh, you know, and, and I would say most of the kids were like, yeah, like the, we get to expend energy, right. And mm-hmm. get to have fun. And they liked the teacher. Yeah. Um, but I had, you know, those students who were not, uh, really was, was more of a difficult experience to be there. A lot Mm -hmm. of sounds, a lot of movement, a lot of, you know, big open space being in the gym and just a lot of bright light. And so we have like almost a sensory nightmare Mm -hmm. for kids on spectrum, right? And then on top of it, you have whatever the activity is, oftentimes is not something that I would say our kids, because my son is on spectrum, would be interested in, right? Like it's, it's either a lot of coordination or there's a lot of steps to learn the game or a lot of steps to learn the process. And really by the time, right, you only have what the 35 to 42 minutes or whatever, and it's not enough time to figure it out. And then, yeah, eventually repetitively, sometimes something catches on, like Mm -hmm. maybe the kickball game catches on or something. Um, And then you kind of have like the other side of this, which is, I was going to say the other side of the spectrum, but (laughs) um, sounds cliche, but where it's, okay, we're doing movement on like the boards with, I forget what they're called, like the boards with the wheels on the bottom. They look like- Oh, the scooters. Yeah. They're scooters. Yeah. Yeah. Like you have that, which is cool and fun. And for many sensory sensitive kids, like that is a really good way to regulate, right? Like have that input. Um, But for others, that's still not like fun. It's still not something that they really want to engage in. And I love when I, I've worked, I actually did a podcast with Gnome Surf, who um, does surf therapy. Mm-hmm. And he used the same exact term, we meet the kids where they're at. Mm-hmm. And I, and when I hear that, it really makes me feel like, okay, you guys get it. And oftentimes as parents, you know, we don't, people don't get it <laughs> all yeah. that often. Um, and it sounds like when you meet a student or a child where they're at, right, we can have a lot more um, success here. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. And and something that I want to point out, which is uh, endemic, and it's, it's interesting because it's the only thing that I really ever find myself not necessarily correcting, but elaborating or expounding on um, when I'm talking about our program. If you look at our videos and our um, what we share on social media and, and what we have in the autism fitness toolbox, any of the examples, we're not just working with young people. In, in fact, m- my career started off working with, uh, teens and adolescents and some of my athletes that I've worked with, uh, m- in fact, the majority of them are late teens, early twenties. Um, and I've had athletes in their thirties, forties, and fifties, because when we look at, at physical activity and we look at developing strength, stability, and, and motor skills, we're looking at these from the perspective of life skills. And if you're looking at it as a life skill, so someone once asked me, well, what happens when they're able to do, referring to the, the autism fitness 15, the, the 15 central exercises in our curriculum. I said, what happens when they can do all of them? I'm thinking, well, what do you mean? You stop, 
I mean, you, you keep you keep going. There's not never a point where you're going to stop moving. You know, that's when you stop breathing. So, uh, so it's really a life skill and and a quality of life program over time. And that's one of the biggest changes that I've seen, definitely for the for the better. Um, with this population and with people who are involved with the autism population, whether they're professionals or, or family members, because when I first started back in uh, 2003, 2004, I had some experiences where I don't think people necessarily understood the importance or understood the benefit or understood what fitness actually was apart from what do you mean, like running on a treadmill or doing jumping jacks? I think there's been a shift and I've had so many conversations with, with colleagues, um, not just in the, in the, um, in the fitness world or in the special education world, but, but all around, um, the, um, the, the professions and related service providers working with the autism population, it seems that there's been a shift from academics and, and a, a, a focus, maybe even an obsession with academic programming to quality of life program programming, which I, I really like that. And I think if we look at quality of life, I don't think, and of course I'm biased because if you look what I do for a career, um, I, I don't think you can have that conversation without talking about fitness. And if you are going to talk about fitness, we have to start defining what fitness is and, and how we're setting that up in the short and long term uh, for, for the individuals that we're serving. Yeah, I mean, I think that's super important because one of the things I, uh, at the beginning of, you know, COVID, quarantine, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, I was really uh, emphasizing movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a yoga teacher myself, uh, and I was also emphasizing meditation and just going for walks, being in nature, like all of those things. And again, I was... I was talking about, and I still do, in terms of a life skill, right, Mm -hmm. of something that we need to do to maintain uh, physical regulation, mental regulation. And I think if nothing else, if even if we approach this from, you know, managing anxiety and depression, you know, 75, and I, I think that's a low number of those on spectrum have anxiety or reported anxiety. And I really have not met someone who doesn't. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I would say it's probably more like 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is such a great tool. And then just, I think, sometimes where people struggle, and I think not just people <laughs> with autism, but everyone kind of struggles sometimes with, well, what's the right thing for me, yes. right? Like, yep. what's the right way to get, um, you know, fit or feel healthy yep. or feel like I'm getting movement that makes sense for me, given mm-hmm. my skills or my body type and what have you. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And this is another conversation that that we have a lot in autism fitness, both, both with our certified pros and in conversations like this also where we're looking at you know what to do and what we have now with the advent and flourishing and almost our complete synchronicity with the internet whereas there was a a paucity or or less or lack of access to information decades ago now we have an overwhelming amount of information and I can talk about this in, in a few different ways, but I like to look at it. Let, let's talk about it from the perspective of being a, a, a coach in the fitness profession. The best 
coaches, and of course I'm using best with quotations around it, but let's say, you know, our, our 1% top coaches, and that doesn't mean the most um, successful or the most well-known. This means the most effective coaches. The most effective coaches have the most effective filters, meaning it's not about how many exercises you know or how, or, uh, how much you can make a person do work, but understanding the art and science of programming. So to introduce a hundred different exercises to somebody and then use that as the, as the basis of how great the program is, is misguided. What we have to look at at a foundation is what physical skills are going to have the greatest amount of carryover or generalization to activities of, uh, of daily living. And if we're looking at it from that perspective, we start to funnel what makes sense and what is just extra there. And that's what we're teaching. So for example, we are, uh, we, uh, I'm currently teaching our, the first, uh, our inaugural class of autism fitness uh, certify, um, certification level two. And our level two is going really in depth with programming and making specific choices about exercise progressions, uh, regressions, and variations. It's not about as many exercises as you possibly know, or just doing more and more and more. It's about having an exercise that makes sense for that individual and is going to help them or prepare them for the challenges of daily life. And we and ultimately. Our, our gold standard is the athlete being able to perform that exercise safely and effectively independently so that, they, so that we do see the skills carry over. Now, the cool thing is there are no, there's no such thing as an autism-specific exercise. Right. We're all human beings. There are exercises. There are exercises that have a lot more generalization to ADLs, and there are exercises that, while cool looking, don't have that much uh, facilitation of, of skills beyond, you know, we can we can call it a circus trick, or we can call it, so knowing your hierarchy of movement and what what is going to have the greatest impact is is the mark of an effective coach. So. When we're programming, you can look at some of the exercises, and it sounds like you've done a, a, a lot of uh, reconnaissance on on your own with our program. We're not doing; we don't have some super secret methodology where I've invented a bunch of exercises just for the autism population. Because last I checked, they have arms and legs and torsos <laughs> and backs and you know right. anterior and posterior chains like they're human beings they move like human beings right um although we of course we do have a lot of underlying um strength and motor deficits that that we can get into so i look at that as as a coach and say well why would i not just program with the same exercises i know are are effective for the general population or even the sports specific population um, with this population, with the caveat being, I know I'm going to have to regress a lot of the exercises because an exercise itself is only as effective as it's being performed. And that's one of the, I, I call it the emperor's new clothes approach to mm -hmm. exercise. So if you, if you remember the story, you know, the, the emperor's walking around, um, naked because, uh, 
two uh, two shysters convinced him that they had this gorgeous invisible. Uh, well, it was invisible cloth, or it was invisible to anybody who couldn't see how beautiful it was. Right. So if you have someone performing an exercise and the exercise just does not look like it's supposed to look and isn't pro- isn't providing what it's supposed to provide, you can claim all you want that, oh, this uh, this athlete is doing an overhead press or this athlete is, is doing a squat or whatever it is. Um, but are they really? And are they doing it to a level of progression or more likely regression that's actually going to benefit the, them right now? So in autism fitness, we, we call this, we, we have a... Um, we have a, a big uh, uh, text logo of this, and it says, know what you're looking at. And mm-hmm. it's it's not an indictment for, for our pros. It's stop and look and really consider what does this movement look like for this athlete right now, and how can we make it better? Right. And it's interesting you say it that way because a couple things start coming to mind. Um, in my own yoga teacher training, mm-hmm. um, my teacher will, we spent, we joked one time that in our training, we spent 45 minutes learning how to do downward dog mm-hmm. properly. Right. Mm-hmm. And and in just that one exercise that some people consider, I will put in quotes, a rest mm-hmm posture, there was more work (laughs) that we learned. And that was exactly her point was, this is what you're learning. And when you're working with your participants in a class, again, look at their bodies, look at how they're positioning, right? And and support precedes um, action, right? So you need to build that really strong foundation so that we can build on the skill. And so you're saying exactly the same thing. And it's also giving me some like... um, I know some vibes around how possibly an OT or a PT, a physical therapist or occupational therapist would work with an individual. Mm -hmm. Um, So could you walk me through like, okay, I'm a parent, (laughs) Um, you know, I know, you know, and even my, maybe my child has expressed interest in doing some movement, but Mm. you know, the usual things aren't, you know, clicking. So I I go to you and what happens now? Good question. So we have uh, an assessment that I developed called the PAC profile, which is PAC. And it's not something that I developed because I thought, hey, we need a really cool acronym to tack on to autism fitness. (laughs) What I I recognized was particularly, and this is another thing that transcends the autism population, but is very, very important for the autism population. And you you mentioned motivation earlier, and I'll, I'll get to that. We're not just looking at the exercises them, themselves. So if I were to just write out, th- this is where we differ. If I were to just write out a, a program for, um, for someone's son or someone's daughter and say, okay, these are the exercises to do, even with the progressions and regressions, what happens when you don't have an, a, an athlete or an individual who's super motivated and what happens when they don't understand the instruction and you know what happens when what happens when what happens when you'll you'll uh, recognize that after a few minutes of speaking with me I ask a lot of questions and then I ask questions on top of questions right. because I I need to get the information that that I need about uh, about what's happening right now so physically so physical adaptive and cognitive that's the pack profile this the p is physical so what level of progression or regression 
do we need to teach this exercise at right now? So if we're talking about a squat, can this athlete, you know, squat below parallel 10 times? Most likely not. In, in my almost 20 years of, of doing this, most of our athletes need um, some type of physical support to maintain a, a proper or just initiating the squatting pattern. We spent an hour talking about that uh, last night in our level two curriculum. And then we go, get to adaptive. That's the A. So adaptive is level of motivation to perform this particular exercise. So some movements, some activities, some exercises are going to be uh, going to be preferential to others. We have athletes who love push throws and don't want to do overhead presses. All right, fine. That, that gives us information. And it also tells us how we can pro provide positive behavior support. Mind you, some of our athletes don't even want to come into the door. Mm -hmm. Right. They're not going to. Yeah. So what do we do there? And the thing about meeting someone where they're at is if I have an athlete who doesn't even want to come into the gym or doesn't even want to initiate in the setting. I want to respect that that athlete as a human being. So as a human being, there are expectations. So I can say, well, it doesn't absolve them. And it doesn't mean that, okay, well, they don't like it, so they never have to do fitness. If I have to do stuff that I don't necessarily like during the day, then I, th there can be an ex expectation of another human being that even though they don't necessarily like it, and we can certainly get into that um, in the beginning, in the first few seconds, because it's overwhelming or their, their level of anxiety is elevated, it doesn't mean that, that we stop doing it. It means that we figure out an inroad to make this more reinforcing for them. So the adaptive is simply how motivated are they to do this exercise? And then we get to the cognitive. When we talk about cognitive, we're not talking about um, high versus low functioning because these are too general. Even with, uh, with physical, someone could say, oh, they're, they're high physical functioning, they're high adaptive functioning, and they're high cognitive function. I still don't have really any information whatsoever until I run, uh, run them through an assessment. Cognitive functioning simply means um, at, at what stage of coaching or cueing are they best going to understand this exercise? And we're always demonstrating because I'm not going to explain a, a movement to an athlete. I'm going to show them. Now, if they can replicate my example of that overhead press or that hurdle step, awesome. If they need more intensive prompting with that, if I have to do a hand over hand, or if we have to break the movement down, then we break the movement down. And the biggest, I, I think the biggest obstacle most of the time in programming for this population is overcoaching by overexplaining. So we, we have a mantra in autism fitness, which is label, demonstrate, do, and cue. So label the exercise. Okay, overhead press. Demonstrate it for the athlete. Let them do it and cue along the way because we don't want to over we don't want to overwhelm with information. We just want the athlete to get moving as soon as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. No, it makes sense. Totally makes sense. Hey there, this is Ily again, and I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to take a moment and let you know that in addition to bringing you great interviews and content here on the Autism in Real Life podcast, I also offer online courses, workshops, and customized coaching. So if you're a family member, an educator, or a part of an organization looking for support or autism education, I would love to work with you to help meet your specific needs. Check out my website at thespectrumstrategy.com or email me at ilia, I-L-I-A, 
at thespectrumstrategygroup.com. You can also message me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. So I look forward to hearing from you. Take care. Yeah, and so the 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 pack profile. So the first thing we do with an athlete is I take them through the pack profile, which um, is our fifteen. We call them the autism fitness fifteen. I didn't invent them. I just chose the exercises <laughs> that I think are most uh, most pertinent to developing the skills that we want to develop. So we have a warm up phase, dynamic movement phase that features some medicine ball throws, rope swings, and then our strength and stability phase where we spend the most time because these are most of the deficits that we see among this population, not too different from general population either. So I'll take the athlete through and I video everything because we go back and, and analyze it. So I take the athlete through this um, pack profile assessment session. And the first things, and we, we discussed this in the certification, my job or your job as a, as a certified pro in those first couple of sessions is to establish a safe, secure, and least anxiety-provoking environment as possible. Because the more an athlete is motivated, the more opportunity you are going to get to coach. That's not always, that's not always the case. And the goal in that assessment session is not to get, quote, everything that you can possibly get done done. If I get three or four exercises completed with an athlete who is really off task during that session, or I've had athletes who spend, you know, half of an hour long assessment session crying. All right, we'll start with crying and then we'll move on to the, right, to the next right. exercise. It's like, all right, that's where you're at right now. And it doesn't mean that we're going to stop entirely, but my job is not to get as much done as possible. My job is to make sure that there is a highly qualitative aspect to everything that we're doing, because I also want my, what I'm doing in that pack profile assessment is I'm taking baseline of everything. And it, and it's sometimes the case where I'm doing an assessment and a parent will come back in the room or they'll say, Oh, they can, they can do that. No, they can do it. I'll say, it's fine. I don't care if they can do it or not right now. We'll just keep going until I get a sense of uh, what, they, what they can actually do with this exercise. And we can always progress. Like that, that's the thing is we can always make something more challenging, but I'm not going to make something more challenging just for the sake of making it more challenging. It needs to meet the current ability level of that athlete. So we start where we start and it's fine. I, in that way, it's non-judgmental, but I need to figure out where we're starting so I know what is going to be the most um, effective way to provide this exercise for this particular athlete. And if they're super motivated or, or super cooperative throughout the whole session, great. I can get the assessment done in you know 30 minutes, 35 minutes, and then we'll just start programming. But, right. but it, it, it comes down to, so much of it comes down to that adaptive factor. And that's when I'll get the email, oh, my son or my daughter hates to exercise. And I'll say, great. What do we mean by exercise? Like what, <laughs> what happened? Because these are such, when you have such a blanket term like this, and then you jump off of it, so much of, of those general questions or those general declarations are about um, filling in the blanks. So rather than fill in the blank, and so someone says, oh, my son or my daughter hates to exercise. And I'll say, hold on, we need more questions here. Or, you know, what my son, my son or my daughter is 17 um, and nonverbal, what exercises should we do? 
I could give you a list of exercises, but I right. really, it would not, I, I would be stealing somebody's money. If I'm, if I'm doing a, a consult with them and I just gave them a sheet of exercises, I would be t- just taking your money because it's not, you need something that you can actually execute and, and something that makes sense for everybody. And in order to do that, I, I need to get deeper with the information about physical, adaptive and cognitive functioning. Right. And I think you, you're mentioning two important things for, for me here. Um, one is the, you know, a lot of this initial assessment mm-hmm. um, is also about building rapport and building yeah. trust, right? Yeah. I mean, I think when I work with educators, the number one thing we <laughs> I will say is, you know, your students need to know, and in this case, your athletes need to know that you actually care about them. Yeah. And that is so important. Um, and it sounds like that's, you know, the model that you have here is to build that rapport, building trust, um, you know, validating where your uh, athlete is at. Yeah. And I think that's super important. Um and, you know, you mentioned another thing here is um, when, when a, you know, I could, I probably could have been that parent at one time and says, my kid, I used to exercise. Uh, and it, it comes back, uh, it could be me too, <laughs> but then it's, you know, you're saying pause, let's kind of step back a little bit. Well, what kind of exercises have they been doing? And, and the way it feels to me is more of like, well, what's been their experience yeah. and almost why, why do they hate it? Right. Like yeah. what has been the, what have been some of the reasons that have led, and I can think of a whole bunch in my head, um, for, for kids that I've worked with. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that's really important. I think parents get so excited that they want, they want their kids to, you know, feel like successful and feel like they're getting movement in and feel accomplished. But it is all of those little baby steps that I think to get to that place. Yeah. And, and we, and this has been the experience both, you know, for myself and, and for a lot of our certified pros, the difference between session one and session five or session six, I can't tell you how many certified pros I've had come back to me saying, oh yeah, the, the, they're, that mother or that father or both of them said, I had no idea that they could do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're not doing, we don't have a magic wand in our, I tell people, I don't have a magic wand. <laughs> I have concepts and I have strategies that are valid and if used properly will work because of the track record and because of, of what we know the the course will will usually be for, for our athletes. If we look at one of the biggest obstacles with this population in terms of initiating with a new activity, we have a, a really high level of anxiety. So mm-hmm. when we ask so let's break this down. I, I'm, I, 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 if nothing else, I like to operationally define everything because it tells us you know, where we're going. So where does, I'll pose it to you. Where does anxiety come from? It could come from a thousand different places. Yeah. And, and what, what is it ultimately an expression of? Uh, sometimes fear, sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, recalling traumatic experiences mm-hmm. or perceived traumatic experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, again, there's, is a variety of different, but I'm yep. curious where, where do you think that is? Not knowing what's happening next. Yeah. For, for many of our, our folks, that is true. Yep. Yeah. So if, if we can provide structure, one, one of the things, if nothing else that our program provides in a variety of ways is structure. 
So here's what's happening. The, you know, we're going to do this exercise. You have five repetitions, and then you can, and then you can take a break, or you can, you know, perform a preferred activity, whatever it is, we put everything into a contingency because it provides structure for our athletes. Because when they walk into the gym or one of our, um, one of our certified pros walks into a home for the first time, or we have an adapted PE teacher who's, uh, who's been working with, uh, with a student for years, but this is the first time they're, they're implementing this particular program or this protocol, it's going to be, it could be overwhelming for that athlete because they don't know Number one, what's happening? Number two, they don't know how to perform the the exercise. And number three, they are unfamiliar with the terminology. So right. the more we can provide um, structure and the more we can provide a narrative to that as well, the less anxiety we're going to see. So structure and, and replication are two of the most beneficial tools that that we have. And and. Yeah replication, you know, doing a lot of the same stuff over and over and over. And I always find it laughable when that, um, when that quote goes around, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and thinking there's going to be a different result. I think that is, it's accurate, but only contextually, because we do a lot of the same stuff over and over and over, because then one day we see the athlete click and they're doing it independently because they've had that structure. So I think with that, there's there's a time and a place, certainly. Right. So definitely that comes back to the the other um, phrase people will say is practice, 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 right? So having been in dance and in the arts, um, you know, that's what musicians and dancers do is they repeat things over and over and over yeah. again until it gets just that little bit better. So I think it's a similar yeah. um, concept for sure. Yeah. And then our job as coaches is to make sure that when our athlete is, re- is performing that exercise over and over and over, over, that it, it is at a level of progression or, or regression that makes sense for them. Because I can do five plus five equals 11 over and over and over. Five plus five <laughs> equals 11. And then I can say, oh, I was doing addition. Yeah, you were doing addition, but you were, you were getting, you know, the, the, inc- the incorrect answer. So, and, and our, it's not the responsibility of our athlete to do the exercise correctly when they're first learning it. It's our responsibility as a coach or as an instructor to set up the environment, everything around them, including the the coaching, including that level of progression or regression so that we are, so that they have almost zero opportunity to fail. Yeah, I really love the, all of the different pieces that you have here. You have the meeting the student where they're at. You're yeah. having all of the intermediate steps of, um, you know, building rapport and gaining buy-in and um, building a programming that's very customizable, uh, building the environment so that it is conducive to learning and to feeling uh, accepted and feeling safe. Uh, also, this, like we just talked about, the concept of predictability mm-hmm. um, and being able to to know what's coming next or to, you know, relatively well predict what might be coming. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I think all of those are great, right? Like that's, we do that in classrooms yeah. <laughs> and, and that's what we work, you know, and working with parents um, and anyone working with, you know, our population so that they can learn that these things are even more important than for a neurotypical individual. And so I'm really 
curious and you keep talking about your your program, your certification mm-hmm. program. Yep. So who are people that come to you for certification? Because I've worked, uh, I do a lot of professional development for mm-hmm. educators and I've had a couple of uh, phys ed teachers who have really, like you said, you started out kind of like learning stuff on their own and they come to my training to learn more about autism in general. Yep. And then they try to apply those principles uh, in their, you know, in their uh, programming in their coursework. Mm-hmm. So I think that's amazing because they're going really above and beyond. But who is it that would then go to get certified with um, autism fitness? We have such, and we could not have uh, predicted it. My my business manager, um, David and I, who we, we developed the, the curriculum together and, and the structure for the programming uh, in the certification level one. And we have such a a varied representational sample of of people who are involved with this population we have we have parents we've had siblings go through the course i think professionally the the breakdown is pretty even across we have a lot of uh, occupational and physical therapists who love the fact that we have an assessment that's not based on can you just cross midline with one finger and can you catch a tennis ball with one hand? It's well, the feedback that we've gotten on it is it's a lot more pertinent to real life, uh, which they like. We get a lot of adapted PE instructors. Sometimes we'll have a school who will send uh, multiple uh, multiple professionals. They'll send the OTs and the PTs and the uh, the adapted PE coaches. We we get a lot of adapted physical ed. Uh, coaches. Mm -hmm. And then we get speech pathologists, which makes me almost as, as giddy as I I get, because they're also incorporating movement and speech. And we've seen some wonderful things. In fact, I'm going to be presenting with one of our certified pros, who's a speech therapist at this year's card conference, uh, virtually Mm -hmm. on integrating fitness protocols into speech sessions and getting better language production as well. So we have speech therapists, we have uh, numerous uh, BCBAs in the program who want to enhance their own um, their own practices with a fitness component. And, uh, and we get, per, of course, personal trainers who are interested with it. The, the stories of the personal trainers are almost always the same. They're a, they're a, uh, a really well-respected personal trainer. And then they have a parent who asks them, to work with their son or daughter who's on the spectrum and they, you know, jump on, jump on Google, search autism fitness, find us and enroll in, in the certification. <laughs> so we are a little over three years into the level one now. And we have over, I believe over 400 certified pros in, um, in 10 different countries. And, and that sounds impressive and we are proud of it. What, what puts it into perspective is one of our certified pros, she's a, a parent, she's in our level two curriculum now. She was having a, a conversation with the um, one of the executives in the school district where she is uh, up in New Hampshire. And she was telling this executive, well, we, uh, you know, we have over 400 certified pros around the world. And um, this administrator uh, laughed and said, we need 400 in this district alone. I said, <laughs> All right, we, we've got some work to do. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, no, there is some um, definitely a lot of application for this. And that's why I was asking, I am, you know, thrilled that you offer pro that you have people certified all mm-hmm. across um, the country and the world, really. Mm-hmm. So um, what resources are out there for parents in addition to uh, becoming a certified coach? Are there other things available to them? Yeah, uh, glad you asked. We just launched uh, after uh, five years of, of redevelopment, our, uh, autism fitness toolbox, which is an online curriculum. It's a subscription where you get the, uh, the basic protocols and methodology of, of autism fitness. You also get access to what is becoming, I believe it is now, but it'll be even bigger. The world's largest library of, uh, of videos featuring individuals with autism performing, uh, all, all of the exercises so you can get a, a really good understanding of what it looks like when we're doing a progression for a band row, what it looks like when we're doing a regression for a band row. Um, we put videos up there of actual assessment sessions also, so you can see that it is not picture perfect uh, every time. In fact, seldom is, is that the case. And then each month you get uh, exclusive access to new videos and new um, new protocols that uh, that we're developing, and then we all, we're also offering a bonus to that called Pack Plus, where uh, six times a year you get access to me via um, via live Zoom calls, where I'll answer any questions about curriculum development, programming, um, behavior support, anything like that. That's awesome. So, I mean, I, I know with the our our world of COVID, it looks mm-hmm. like everything. You have a lot of online resources, right? Yeah. So people can access everything online, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, if they were looking for a certified coach in mm-hmm. their area, um, is there a way to find people? Yeah, we uh, <laughs> we have the our find a professional. Uh, page on autismfitness.com. So it's uh, broken down by by country and, and region and state. So if you're looking for a certified pro in your area, you can uh, you can find one there. Cool. And I, I'm guessing, again, um, given our current situation, there might be a hybrid of whether stuff's online or whether it's in person, correct? Yeah. So what we did, um, you know, the first couple of weeks into March, I had 15 uh, level one certification scheduled for uh, 2020, including one in Singapore and two in Australia. I was supposed to be in Australia uh, two weeks from now, or yeah, week and a half from now. What we did was we turned so the 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 level the certification level one is uh, the the items that are included or the the experiences that are included are the level one guidebook access to that autism fitness toolbox. So all of our certified pros get access to the toolbox. Um, And then the, the two day live course. So what we did was we turned the two day live course into a hybrid, which is nine um, online sessions that we run live on, on zoom. And then we record them. So if someone can't be there, they can watch the replay and they have access to it um, in perpetuity, you know, whenever they want to, go back and access it. Um, and then we're going to have our live practical because so much of this, that there, there are, there are so many things, so many, many nuances and practices, especially with fitness that will get lost and we'll, we'll just not have the same resonance 
uh, online. So once it is, uh, again, safe to, to travel and especially to gather and be in, in close proximity, we're going to be doing a, the one-day practical um, in, uh, in regions throughout the U.S. and, again, in, in international also. So the way that and, – and we had um, – we invited all of our current uh, level one pros to come and join the, the – uh, the Zoom sessions for the virtual level one, and we wanted their feedback. And I'm sitting here, you know, biting my nails. And they all came back uh, universally and said, "Oh, this course is better now because we have more time to digest the information, more time to ask questions. You know, it's an hour and a half at a time, twice a week. It, it's so much. It, it it's it's spaced out so much better than you could ever do in in." two eight hour intensive days because the information produce you know the information uh provided that way tends to lead to you know the the um the quintessential smoke coming out of the ears by the end of the weekend <laughs> and people close to, to right. keeling over by the yeah, end it's a, so, it can be very intense to have yeah. those you know yeah. i'm learning that too because i used to run really you know full week workshops mm-hmm. or two-day workshops and um, really breaking it down does allow for people to kind of process engage maybe apply some yeah. stuff before they come back um, when you are shoving all of that information or trying to into your brain, it can only hold so much yeah, stuff and, live. <laughs> and if you look at our curriculum, because it's interdisciplinary, we'll have, you know, a speech pathologist come in who has no idea about, you know, exercise programming, or we'll have a trainer come in who has no idea about positive behavior support and, you know, coaching and cueing for this population. So we have people who are coming in with expertise in one area, but you know, virtually no information about another area. So the the key to balancing all that is number one, the structure of the curriculum, but also giving people um, enough information to be to be successful without overwhelming them. Yeah, and it's also great to have such a diverse population. Mm-hmm in those learning uh, spaces, because I think it's great, you know, and something I strive for is to first build um, a community of people who in your case are your autism fitness trainers and coaches. Um, But like for us, it would be like, you know, a cohort of educators or a cohort of parents who are sharing in a similar experience, but can share from their own perspectives, which I think is always um, really helpful to learning. Yeah. And, and the contributions also, because people will have right. different experiences or we can offer, we can even talk about the same thing from different perspectives or add to it. You know, a, a speech pathologist, for example, is going to be very interested in uh, speech production and, and prosody and, and all of those aspects of performance during a fitness session more so maybe than, um, than an OT or, or a PT. But the key is having everybody speak the same technical language, because then we actually know what we're talking about. And we can talk about the hierarchy of importance. You know, to me, speech production is really important. My first goal is to get this athlete moving through this particular exercise correctly and efficiently. And then I can build in these skills as well, too. So there's, you know, understanding the system and being able to apply it to your particular trade or to your particular field is something that we take really seriously because we don't want, we, we want to create a standard among our certified pros. Um, many who have told us it was the most difficult um, certification exam that they've ever, they've ever taken. And our response to that is good because right. we really want a, we, we want to produce 
um, high quality practitioners. Right. And it sounds like, I mean, I think it's, uh, again, to use another phrase, right? Anything worth doing is going to be really hard. <laughs> yeah, and, and good. <laughs> Right. And it, and the outcome is good. And, and I think, um, you know, your approach to, um, you know, certification, your approach to working with your athletes and with families, I mean, I think it's really um, inspiring. And I love inspiring things. And I love being able to offer my listeners, you know, different options and things to kind of consider mm-hmm. um, when they're, you know, when they're looking at tools for the classroom tools for a client, tools for their um, children or family members. Uh, So, you know, I really appreciate you spending time with me today to talk about that. Yeah, thank you very much. And thank you for giving me, you know, the opportunity to talk about it also. And I I know you watched that, the the TEDx talk that I did as well. And, you know, one of the first statements that I, I recall making during that presentation was, you know, asking everybody if they thought fitness was important and then asking them if they thought fitness was important for special needs populations. And people can, you know, anybody is going to, virtually anybody is going to raise their hand um, in that situation. So yeah, of course, I think if it's, it's important. Well, then what is the discrepancy or, or, or what is the relationship between thinking it's important and then taking action on right. it also? So if we think it's important, well, we think something great okay well now how do we do it so what we what we're out to to achieve and the legacy that we want to leave with autism fitness is to to have accessibility not be a, a barrier but also to have information and, and quality information not be a, a barrier either so not only to have more accessibility whether that means in the private sector with um with personal trainers or with OTs and PTs, speech pathologists, behavior therapists, but in the public sector as well. And, and look at um, adapted PE really as, as such a, an important, really a, a critical aspect of development for this population. Right. Yeah. And I, I think it's, you, you hit on it earlier when you said this, uh, the shift in educational programming to mm-hmm. building, you know, life skills yeah. and, you know, we, we, there's still, you know, also depending on what part of the country you're in and what part of the world you're in, you know, there is this uh, sometimes still this strong academic, uh, focus, which is beautiful yeah. and has, it's definitely has its place. Um, but also we need to integrate that with, you know, being able to be self-aware and take care of ourselves and, you know, we'll focus on all of the other things that will impact us, no matter, right, what kind of work we do, no matter what, where we live, no matter, um, you know, who our partners are, any of that stuff. If we focus on the self piece uh, from a holistic standpoint, and this definitely fits right into that, um, right? How much, how much better could that be? Yeah. And, and taking a proactive approach to it, because if you look at the numbers of individuals affected by autism who also have um, comorb- uh, comorbid diagnoses of lifestyle-related medical complications, you're looking at you know, cardiovascular disease, you're looking at type 2 diabetes, um, and, and then you're also looking at, at these other things that may not necessarily be... Um, be a, a diagnosis. Like, if you have an individual who is sitting for years and years and years, 
there's a great likelihood that they're going to develop low back pain. It's, it's the foremost mm-hmm. complaint of adults in, in the United States. So now you're telling me you're going to have a nonverbal 38-year-old individual on the autism spectrum who has low back pain, which is is definitely affecting their quality of life. And we're not going to do anything about it because we're not going to do anything about it. But fitness is important. Raise your hand. So, <laughs> and that to me is, you know, there's, I, I don't know how to, you know, forgive that or so I, I certainly won't say it's okay, but nothing's going to happen unless we actually take action and appreciate the fact that we can prevent a lot of this stuff by prioritizing fitness. Because raising your hand is nice, but taking action is is critical. So if we need to take action, well, then we need to disseminate information in a way that's conducive to actually using it and not just liking something or saying that's amazing on Facebook or Instagram, because that's a great start as far as awareness. But then to turn around and say, that's amazing, but my my son or my daughter won't do that. So all right, well, there's going to be a trade-off there. And I just don't want to see it. I, I, I have too much care and too much respect for this population to say that that's okay. And I was having a conversation with a colleague um, about a year ago, and we were talking about, you know, research studies and, and, and the, you know, the benefits of exercise for the, the autism population. And I said, well, if you're looking at this as a longitudinal study, we've already studied the null hypothesis for decades. We know what happens to this population when they don't have access to exercise. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So do we want to keep doing that or or do we want to redefine what's important for this population in terms of life skills? Yeah. No, so so speaking to that dissemination of information yeah. and how people can connect with you, mm-hmm. um, what is the best way for people to reach out? Um, best way uh, through social media. I'm very, uh, very responsive. If they want to contact us through um, autismfitness.com, we have a uh, we have a chat feature and it's not a it's not a bot. It's not outsourced. <laughs> it's either going to be me or uh, first, it'll probably go through business manager, David, if it's something technical, if it's something program related, it's it, it, it's likely going to wind up on my screen. So um, through autismfitness.com or through uh, the autism fitness on Facebook and on Instagram. Okay, great. And I will put all of that information in the uh, in the comment section so people mm-hmm. can know how to find you. And thank you so much for spending time with me today. Thank you. All right. We'll take care. You too. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh. And if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. Also, if you join our email list at thespectrumstrategy.com, you can get a code to attend one of my online courses for free. See you next time.